Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 45, Deuteronomy chapter 32, the first continuation. Last week, we began our study of this so-called Song of Moses that forms the basis for Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now, this work is very deep. It explains principles that are practical and they're prophetic. They're revealed, but some of them are mysterious. It explains matters in a duality, meaning from two simultaneous perspectives. The perspective of physical, earthly manifestations that mankind can know and sense and and that we can experience. But then also the perspective of the spiritual, heavenly manifestations that are invisible and largely unknowable to men. Now indeed, verses 1 through 43 of chapter 32 are a song. They're a poem that was set to music and they were sung and, and remembered as a song by all Israelites. And this is a song that Yehovah told Moses to write to be a witness against Israel when in future times they, Israel would fall away from God with the result that Israel would suffer calamity and then eventually exile from their precious promised land. Now this song is a, is a warning, it's a hope, it's a condemnation, and it's a pathway to redemption for God's people. And, and as we discussed recently, it is written well in advance of its predictions coming to pass so that the people of Israel will fully understand that their destruction and their exile wasn't serendipity, it wasn't fate. It was also not because God was unfaithful to them or that he was unable to defend them or that the enemy nations that wanted to conquer Israel were stronger or they had more powerful gods than Jehovah. Rather, it is that Israel abandoned the Lord. And what is happening to them is of his direct intervention. Israel is suffering God's divine wrath, even though it might appear on the surface as though it was merely the evil decisions of some surrounding nations. Now let me also point out that it has been and always will be Gentiles, Gentile nations that do evil upon Israel. I've heard it implied that the Lord's use of Gentiles to punish Israel is proof in itself that he now values Gentiles, the church specifically, above Israel. Or that the rest of the world has now been placed on a level playing field with Israel. And in fact, as we'll see in this song, it is the evil nature of these Gentile nations that God is harnessing for his own purposes, and that purpose is to punish his people, the Hebrews. Now the irony is rich. Since these nations are inherently wicked, the Lord will in turn punish these same Gentile nations for their wickedness and their terrible treatment of Israel that resulted. Now this presents me with a perfect opportunity to explain what's happening today with, the, with Israel and the Middle East. It is nothing short of God working out 
his predetermined, pre-announced plan of redemption. Now I chuckle, little evil chuckle I guess, each time I view one of the countless news pieces or hear another politician or statesman or pundit explain why the Middle East is so chaotic and why his plan to salvage it is going to work when none other has. Even a goodly portion of the church chooses to endlessly work towards peace and reconciliation between the Israelis and the Palestines, between the Israelis and the Syrians, between the Israelis and the Egyptians, between the Israelis and the Jordanians, between the Israelis and the Lebanese, the Israelis and the Saudis, and on and on and on. And it's always the Israelis and somebody. So, the general worldwide belief is, it's got to be the Jews who are the problem. And in a way, entirely different from what they're thinking, they're right. Of course, for them, the problem with, with the Jews is, they have dared to continue to exist. And especially in a place that these Gentile nations don't want them. The ancient Jewish homeland of Israel. Now we've watched every sort of plan designed to bring peace to that region dissolve into carnage in no time at all. The DOA roadmap to peace of our previous American presidential administration administration naturally went nowhere. The current administration has a new plan that's basically to just blame Israel for everything that happens and make friends with the Islamic enemies that surround them. The situation is not on its way to being resolved. It's just different than it was five years ago. Every UN plan to partition Israel or give away its land, compromise its security, give more aid, impose its will militarily, or win the hearts and minds of the fractured Muslim religion to convince them that peace is a better choice simply leaves countless more dead in its wake. Intractable is the word most often used to describe the Middle East. Hopeless usually runs a close second. Insane probably next. The bottom line is this. Outside of believing God's word, there is no context for understanding the Middle East. Outside of believing Yehovah who created the nations and set mysterious divine beings, Benai Elohim, over them, but set Israel apart from the nations for himself, there is no way to comprehend the source of the problem and how it's all going to play out. It's amazing that with the hundreds of billions of dollars thrown at the problem, the millions of lives sacrificed and destroyed and the best minds on earth employed to strategize and formulate a solution that not one thing that no nation including Israel will do is consult God for a solution. Not one. The pattern, this pattern, of mankind refusing 
to consult the Creator on matters He alone controls and determines is an ancient one. And all throughout history, no one has been exempt from this temptation. A temptation that the God of Israel warns Israel to be aware of and to avoid. This warning is found in the Song of Moses. We ended at verse 11 last week. Let's reread Deuteronomy 32, beginning with verse 12. Get on page um, 235 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Adonai alone led his people. No alien god was with him. He made them ride on the heights of the earth. They ate the produce of the fields. He had them suck honey from the rocks, olive oil from the crags, curds from the cows, and milk from the sheep with lamb fat, rams from Bashan, and goats with the finest wheat flour. And you drank sparkling wine from the blood of grapes. But Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, thick, gross. He abandoned God as maker. He scorned the rock, his salvation. They roused him to jealousy with alien gods, provoked him with abominations. They sacrificed to demons, non-gods, gods that they had never known, new gods that had just come up lately, which your ancestors hadn't feared. You ignored the rock who fathered you. You forgot God who gave you birth. Adonai saw he was filled with scorn at his sons and daughters' provocation, and he said, I'm going to hide my face from them. See what will become of them. For they are her first generation, untrustworthy children. They aroused my jealousy with a non-god and provoked me with their vanities. I will arouse their jealousy with a non-people. I'll provoke them with a vile nation. For my anger has been fired up. It burns to the depths of Sheol. Devouring the earth and its crops, kindling the very roots of the hills, I will heap disasters on them. I'll use up all my arrows against them. Fatigued by hunger, they'll be consumed by fever and bitter defeat. I'll send them the fangs of wild beasts, the poison of reptiles crawling in the dust. Outside, the sword makes parents childless. Inside, there's panic, as young men and girls alike are slain, sucklings and graybeards together. I considered putting an end to them, Erasing their memory from the human race. But I feared the insolence of their enemy. Feared that their foes would mistakenly think, we ourselves accomplished this. That and I had nothing to do with it. They're a nation without common sense. Utterly lacking in discernment. If they were wise, they could figure it out. They could understand their destiny. After all, how can one chase a thousand or two put ten thousand to rout unless their rock sells them to their enemies? Unless Adonai hands them over? For our enemies have no rock like our rock. Even they can see that. Rather, their vine is from the vine of Sodom, from the fields of Gomorrah. Their crepes are poisonous. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is snake poison. The cruel venom of vipers. Isn't this hidden with me? Sealed in my storehouses? Vengeance and payback are mine for the time when their foot slips. For the day of their calamity is coming soon. Their doom is rushing upon them. 
Yes, Adonai will judge his people, taking pity on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone, that no one is left slave or free, then he'll ask, where are their gods? The rock in whom they trusted. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let him get up and help you. Let him protect you. Now, see that I, yes, I am he. There's no God beside me. I put to death, I make alive, I wound, I heal. No one saves anyone from my hand. For I lift my hand up to heaven and swear, as surely as I am alive forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and set my hand to judgment, I will render vengeance to my foes and repay those who hate me. I'll make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword will devour flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, flesh from the wild-haired heads of the enemy. Sing out, you nations, about his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance to his adversaries and make atonement for the land of his people. Moses came and proclaimed all the words of this song in the hearing of the people in Hosea, the son of Nun. When he had finished speaking all of these words to Israel, he said to them, Now take heart to all the words of my testimony against you today, so that you can use them in charging your children to be careful to obey all the words of this Torah, for this is not a trivial matter for you. On the contrary, it's your life. Through it you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess in that same day. Adonai said to Moses, Go up into the Gavarim range to Mount Nebo into the land of Moab across from Jericho and look out over the land of Canaan, which I'm giving the people of Israel as a possession. On the mountain you're ascending, you will die. You'll be gathered to your people just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Now the reason for this is both of you broke faith with me. There among the people of Israel at the Mirvat Kadesh spring in the Sin Desert. You failed to demonstrate my holiness there among the people of Israel. So you will see the land from a distance. But you will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. At this point, after the song has so spoken so very lovingly of God's protection and nurturing of Israel and that it is this display of amazing divine love that makes Israel's decision to give their worship and adoration to other gods all the more egregious. The Lord reminds them that it was He who's been guiding them from the beginning. It certainly wasn't with the assistance of some other divinity or God. Hosea 13.4 says, Still, I am Adonai your God from the land of Egypt, and you don't know any other God but me, any other Savior. I knew you in the desert, in the land of terrible drought. Okay, In other words, there's no rational reason for Israel to even consider the help of an alternative spiritual source. The glory for Israel's deliverance should be Yehovah's because they certainly got no help from any of these other gods 
as they were rescued from Egypt and placed into this wonderful land. Verse 13 says that it was Jehovah who set Israel upon the high places of the earth. The high places refer to the central highlands of Israel. It was Jehovah who sustained Israel, gave them all that they needed, even from the most unlikely sources like honey from the rocks and olive oil from the crags in the rocks. It was Jehovah who caused Israel's flocks to grow, to produce milk and meat. It was he who ordered the fields to overflow with the finest wheat and foaming wine for his people. Actually, what this phrase says about wine is foaming grape blood. Grape blood or blood of the grape is an idiom for wine. In no way is wine compared to blood, nor does it symbolize blood. Wine is for joy. Blood is for atonement. Foaming just enforces that what is being discussed is wine, alcoholic drink, not straight grape juice. Because as grapes ferment into wine, the vat foams and bubbles. At verse 15, the focus shifts again. It leaves behind the theme of God's blessing and care for Israel. Instead, it speaks of Israel's disloyalty towards such a good and benevolent God. Israel's grown fat and satisfied. They're quite self-assured. They feel they're without need, and in no time, they forgot that the sole source of all of their shalom and abundance was the Lord God. Yet instead of thanking Him, for their wonderful existence, they credit the various deities that their neighbors bow down to and were customary for that era. Now, how often we've heard sermons, maybe participated in Bible studies, where we encounter this destructive tendency of the Hebrews to divide their loyalties and include other gods. And then we shake our heads in mock disgust, agreeing with the prophets who tell us of this terrible apostasy. Too often we are told that this is why God abandoned and rejected his set-apart people and gave their inheritance to the Gentile church. Let me set the record straight. First, the Lord God has not rejected his people and instead given his attention and favor to the church. Second, we believers are almost universally guilty of doing exactly the same thing that Israel is being indicted for. Every time we pat ourselves on the back for our good fortune, every time we credit our excellent marketing plan or new facilities for growing our church or synagogue, whenever we place our own desires and wants and traditions ahead of what we know full well is God's way. We divide our loyalties and we give credit and glory to other gods. The strange word at the outset of verse 15, Yeshurun, is Hebrew for the upright. It's an epithet for Israel. Israel forsook their creator and turned away from the rock. 
But the last couple of words of this verse are even more interesting, and the English translations cover over a rather fascinating use of Hebrew language. Most Bibles will say, as our complete Jewish Bible says, and he, Israel, spurned the rock of his salvation, or he, Israel, condemned the rock of his salvation, something like that. What it actually says in the original Hebrew is that Israel spurned the rock of Yeshua. That's right. The words his salvation, God's salvation, are in Hebrew, Yeshua. The Hebrew, the given Hebrew name of our Messiah. If only the church would be willing to understand that the name Jesus is but an English translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua. So much more meaning would be added to the Holy Scripture passages that are so so often just glossed over. Yet, when this startling and unexpected revelation happens here in verse 15, whereby the rock is called Yeshua, then it opens up a can of worms that many theologians would just assume it had been left sealed. There is utterly no doubt that this is a reference to Jesus Christ, Messiah Yeshua, the rock of our salvation. Remembering that this speaks of a future time, far from the time of Deuteronomy, we are told that Israel will spurn and even condemn the salvation that God provides for them. I mentioned a few times that Bible prophecies are usually not one-time events. It's long been recognized by Bible scholars that most prophecies happen and then they happen again at a later time. The simplest example is of Israel being exiled not once but three times. Israel falling to idolatry, being restored, doing it all over again is infamous. Even the end times saga of the anti-God, the anti-Christ, entering into the holy temple, setting up an image of himself and demanding that it's worshipped, it's already happened in Israelite history. But it's also going to happen again at a time even future to us. The first time, it was the Syrian governor Antiochus Epiphanes around 167 BC. His army captured Jerusalem and then he established himself as a god in the Holy Temple. We read about this event in the book of Maccabees. And we also read of how the Jewish rebels led by Judah the Maccabee retook the temple a few years later, cleansed it, and then relit the golden menorah. This event is celebrated with a religious festival that even Messiah acknowledged, Hanukkah. And that fact is recorded in the New Testament Gospels. Hanukkah is also called the Feast of Dedication, or better, Rededication. Because it was all about the rededication of the temple to the God of Israel. The point is, is that while 
Yehovah would save Israel on several occasions in the centuries that followed, the Savior, Yeshua, would be yet another manifestation of the prophecy about Yesharun contained in the Song of Moses. Therefore, we need to pay very close attention to what is about to come in the next verses of chapter 32 because it's all too easy for we modern-day believers so far removed from the time when this song was written to forget that just as we are already redeemed by the grace of God, it was the same for Israel at that time. The Israelites... You see, or rather this song was written for the Israelites. Okay? It was not written, it was not intended for an unredeemed people. God was addressing it to the people he had redeemed from Egypt about 40 years earlier and they remained redeemed. The Israelites would apostatize. They'd fall away from God in coming years after Moses' death, just as this song predicts. And they were, but they were also part of the redeemed. So please grasp, this song is not talking to pagans. It's also not talking to seekers. It's speaking to the redeemed of the Lord. In times past, it was directed only towards Israel, but as I have shown you, the biblical patterns and biblical principles never change. So since about 30 AD, the redeemed of God include all the disciples of Yeshua, you and me. Now verse 16 begins to explain with a little more detail exactly what the concept of abandoning God amounts to. Just as at the beginning of the song we get some detail of exactly what loving God means in God's eyes. Let me say it again so there's no mistake. Only those who have God can abandon God. You can't let go of something you never had. Pagans and seekers are never accused of abandoning God. This is because they never had Him in the first place. Those who have God are the redeemed. And the first step towards the abandoning of God is to incorporate alien things into our lives. Things that have no place in the redeemed lifestyle of a believer. Here in verse 16, the reference was more specifically to the universal cultural practices of that day that included burning incense and praying to foreign gods or or owning wooden and stone idols. But that's not all. It also says... Israel provoked him, meaning they angered God, with abominations. What are abominations? In Hebrew, the word is toiva. Toiva. And it means consorting with any unusually unclean thing that the Torah has told the Israelites is not for them. 
It's referring to the use of unclean foods, unclean sacrifices, unclean sexual activity, the improper mixing of seeds or animals, the improper mixing of threads in a garment, homosexuality, so on. Many, many things. Now recall that particularly in Exodus and Leviticus, but in other books of the Torah as well, that there were certain sins that were considered extraordinarily bad in Jehovah's eyes, and so those were labeled abominations. Now the song goes on to explain that they also sacrificed to demons, non-gods, and gods they had not known. Even new gods who had only come recently, gods that Israel's patriarchs and ancestors had not paid homage to. This is not a list of parallel terms for false gods. This is a list of alien things to which Israel wrongly has made sacrifices. Now I find the list most informative because it includes a number of kinds of gods, if you would. Okay? The list includes demons, which are certainly not figments of people's imaginations. The subject of demons is a long and complex one and we'll, we'll not address that just yet. But know that these are real spiritual entities that by definition oppose God. There are, they are evil spiritual entities. And we read of Yeshua himself dealing with these evil spirits on more than one occasion. Really though, even the term demon is not quite right here. The Hebrew word used is shed. Shid, and it appears it generally refers to the spirits of the dead. Now we're going to find reference in the Bible to the Shedim of Sheol, the spirits from the place of the dead, the spirits from the grave. I'm not suggesting that this only refers to evil spirits as being the spirits of dead people, but the whole idea is that since death is the ultimate uncleanness, to deal with a spirit of the dead is about the worst sort of consort with an evil entity that can be imagined. Now let me pause here for a moment. The practice of consulting the spirits of the dead is currently rampant and popular enough that it wouldn't surprise me if someone here had a family member who thought it was profitable to go to a, a spiritual medium and try to contact the spirit of a dearly departed family member. We have entire TV programs now devoted to all to those who do all they can to commune with the spirits of the dead and by all accounts some are successful. See, this is exactly what's being talked about here in verse 17 and it's not humorous. And it's not to be undertaken by believers. Don't ever be involved with such a thing. As the Lord finds it among the most offensive things you can do. And he counts it, listen to this, he counts doing such a thing as having abandoned him in favor of that spirit of the dead. You don't want to be there. Now the next term we encounter is non-gods. 
But it more literally translates to no gods. Lo Elohim. See, this is referring to the figments of people's fertile imaginations or better fertile evil inclinations. They think they're dealing with a god or some kind of spiritual being, but they're not. They're simply confusing their own perverted thoughts with reality. Okay. Then there is a kind of spiritual entity with which the Hebrews might apostatize and worship called gods they had never known. These are foreign gods that had nothing to do with Israel. And finally, as one commentator put it, there is this kind of God who is recent. Or to use an American vernacular, their gods come lately. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know with absolute certainty all the grisly details surrounding these spiritual entities that are real or the spiritual fantasies that don't actually even exist. However, as we've learned from Job and from Daniel and from other passages in the Bible, there are mysterious divine beings, benai Elohim, that have been created by Yehovah and placed in authority over the various nations and their associated land holdings. Though they are not fully independent beings, they're not self-created. Some obviously have turned against God and do not do His will. Now there's much thought going back thousands of years among the Hebrew sages that some of these divine beings who must have had tremendous power at their disposal allowed themselves to be taken as gods and they wanted to be worshipped. And it'd be rather easy to see how pagans especially could view these sons of God, these benai Elohim, as actual gods rather than as subservient spiritual beings. But there's also an implication of territoriality here. And of course we know that it was common among the ancients to think that all gods were territorial. And we're told explicitly in Genesis that the Lord set sons of God, Benai Elohim, over the various nations, the lone exception being Israel. So while these divine beings are in no way real gods, they do exist. They are territorial by definition. And some of them may prey on people's superstitions and on people's evil inclinations and allow themselves to be worshipped as gods. Now we're going to find several instances in the Old Testament and New Testament of angels warning folks not to worship them. Even though their appearance and their powers must have appeared awesome. Even the apostles warned against doing the same towards them after they had performed some kind of miracle and people instinctively fell down before them they were so overwhelmed. So to think that one of these sons of God, Benai Elohim, who presided over some nation or another, preferred to be taken for for a God over that nation rather than as a servant of the Lord, that certainly is not a stretch. Well, then the song returns in verse 18 to accuse Israel of a very unnatural thing. 
to forget the one who gave them life. It was the rock who created them and the rock who brought them to the promised land. It speaks of God who fathered them, but also God who gave them birth. It kind of makes God the mother and the father of Israel. I mean, can you imagine forgetting who your birth parents are? Can you imagine rejecting them outright and giving the credit for your very existence to somebody else? Therefore, in addition to everything else that Israel has done, this means that the Israelites are also breaking the commandment to honor their father and mother, who from a spiritual standpoint is Jehovah. And recall that the penalty for dishonoring your parents is the most severe, death. Thus begins the section of the Song of Moses with the most dreadful implications. It speaks of a redeemed people, a redeemed people, who have made the decision to abandon their Redeemer. And in response, God's decision is to turn them over to the evil they want. Let me put that in more clear modern terms. They're walking away from their salvation. Now let me be very clear. This is a salvation that was already theirs. It was one they were already enjoying. The problem was that in the midst of their salvation, they decided to share themselves with abominations. In addition to their union with God, they wanted to bring themselves into union with evil, unclean things. Did they honestly think that God would remain in in union with them under such circumstances? Well, apparently they did. And how many of us honestly believe that we can pray the prayer of salvation, call on the name of Jesus, and then participate in all kinds of abominations. That we can come into union with all sorts of unclean things that we know we should not. But all the Lord's going to do is wink and look the other way. Matthew 7.22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? And I'm going to tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 19 says it straight away. For abandoning me... I will scorn my sons and daughters, says the Father. I will hide my face from them. Face is panim in Hebrew. And it's an idiom. It means face in the sense of presence. God will remove his presence from the midst of his people. Where is God's face, his presence in his people today? We are told that the presence of God that is within us is the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is in us, then by definition, God is present with us. 
If the Holy Spirit is not present in us, then by definition, God is not present with us. It's pretty simple. And he says, now that I have removed my presence from my people, let's just see what becomes of them. This is a rhetorical statement, of course. God obviously knows what's going to happen. It means that since these people think they know so much, and they think that all of their blessings have come from another source anyway, it's going to be a rather large shock to them when God's presence and His protection and blessings that have become so taken for granted that they're now worthless to them are pulled away from them. And of course, this same pattern and idea is well expressed in the New Testament verses that I just read from Matthew 7, where the utterly shocked people who were, in their own minds, safe and sound believers, hear Yeshua telling them that despite the fact that they even openly professed that He was Messiah, even invoking His name to do some good works, in reality... They were workers of lawlessness. They didn't follow God's laws. And therefore Yeshua has just disavowed them. Now let me be clear. These people thought they could pray the prayer, talk the talk, live among the community of believers, but then go along as they please with no regard to God's commandments. You see, that's the meaning, of course, of lawlessness. All right. As we saw earlier, such a thing as this is regarded by God as abandoning Him. It doesn't matter to Yehovah, folks, that we don't think we've abandoned Him when we add all these evil things to our lives. And when we decided to come into union with unclean things that He has declared forbidden for us, The Lord sets up the definitions and the boundaries. It's not a matter for negotiation. Freedom in the Lord is not the freedom to be disobedient or the freedom to bring His presence that resides within us into contact with sin and defilement. To this matter, the Apostle Paul speaks over and over and over. Well, as a consequence of Israel's unfaithfulness to Jehovah, God resolves to discipline Israel by removing his protection and then subjecting them to attack from enemies and to all sorts of natural disasters. See, the Lord is reversing the holy war protocol. Instead of Israel attacking and winning with God paving the way, they will be attacked and lose because He isn't in it. Instead of abiding in safety and shalom in the land of their rest, Israel will be sent back to the land of their servitude under the authority of a cruel taskmaster. Hmm. Verse 21 makes a word play to make a point. It says that Israel, since Israel vexed God, in other words, they aroused him to jealousy, 
by abandoning him and by turning their affections to low Elohim, no gods, non-gods, he will now vex them by removing his presence and turning them over to a low Ami, a no people, a non-people. In other words, God's going to punish Israel in like kind. The gods Israel turned to were not spirit beings loyal to Jehovah. So he's going to turn Israel over to a conquering people who are not loyal to Jehovah. The term non-people is perhaps better understood in our, in, a, in our modern vernacular by saying a people that aren't mine. A non-people are Gentiles in this sense, especially in that era. The Ami people were the Israelites, while the low Ami non-people was everybody else. So it's not necessarily a particular nation like Edom or Canaan or the nation of the Hittites who were being referred to as the non-people in question. It's just Gentiles in general. It's in the writings of the prophets from centuries later now to this time that we read of this prophetic warning here in the Song of Moses finally coming about. Turn your Bibles to the book of Hosea. We're going to spend a few minutes with this tonight. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 707. I want you to follow along with me. I'm going to start reading at 1-1. We're going to go all the way to 2-3. These are short chapters. Hosea 1-1, page 707 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. This is the word of Adonai that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the reigns of Uziah, Yotham, Ahaz, and Yechaziah the kings of Judah, and during the reign of uh, Yeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Adonai's opening words in speaking to Hosea were to instruct Hosea, Go and marry a whore and have children with this whore, for the land is engaged in flagrant whoring, whoring away from Adonai. So he went and married Gomer, the daughter of Divlaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And Adonai said to him, Call him Yisrael, because in a short, only a short time I will punish the house of Yehu for having shed blood at Yisrael. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And when that day comes, I will break the bow of Israel in the Jezreel Valley. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And Adonai said to him, Name her Lo-Ruchamah. For I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel. By no means will I forgive them. But I will pity the house of Judah. I will save them not by bow, sword, battle, horses, or cavalry, but by Adonai their God. And after weaning lo Ruchmah, she conceived and bore a son. And Adonai said, Name him Lo-Ami, because you are not my people, and I will not be your God. 
Nevertheless, the people of Israel will number as many of the grains of the sand by the sea, which cannot be measured or counted, so that the time will come when, instead of being told, you are not my people, it will be said of them, you are the children of the living God. And then the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves one leader. They will go up out of the land, for that will be a great day. The day of Israel. Say to your brothers, Ami, my people, and to your sisters, Ruchama, pitied. Hosea lived in Rome during the middle of the 8th century B.C. Israel had been divided into two. They'd become two nations since the death of uh, Solomon. It had happened about 175 to 200 years earlier. There were two kingdoms now where the tribes of Israel lived, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, most Bibles will call Israel, although that's a little bit off the mark. It was actually called Ephraim or Ephraim Israel because ten Israelite tribes lived there and Ephraim was the ruling tribe. The southern kingdom was called Judah because of the two tribes that lived there, Benjamin and Judah. Judah was the larger and more powerful ruling tribe. Now, Ephraim, Israel was a political disaster area. It had a whole series of evil kings that led the people into every kind of apostasy. They even reached the point where, much as it is with Israel today, a goodly portion of the population and their leadership desired to no longer be a people set apart for God, but instead to be a people that looked and act very much like their neighbors. Judah was only moderately better. At least the dynasty of David had continued to rule, and in general, Judah didn't dis- uh, did display rather a desire to remain the people of God despite their ongoing flirtations with idolatry. Hosea, you see, was warning the Hebrew people specifically the northern kingdom, that the Lord was finally going to bring about what he had threatened in the Song of Moses. And sure enough, in the book of Hosea, we see this illustration of God's reasons for bringing his wrath upon Ephraim Israel metaphorically acted out in his instructions to his prophet Hosea to marry a whore. This equates to God's marriage-like union to Ephraim Israel who was playing the whore with his pagan neighbors, the illegitimate lover. Okay. Then this whore wife of Hosea produces three children. Yisrael, meaning God sows. Lo Ruchamah, meaning no pity, no mercy. And Lo Ami, meaning not a people, not my people. The idea is that in the Song of Moses, God says that the whoring of Israel will bring about God sowing, 
calamity among Israel, uh, among Israel, Yisrael, God sowing, and that he will show no mercy, lo ruchamah, upon his people. And then Israel, Ephraim Israel, will be turned over to a lo ami, a non-people, resulting in their even becoming themselves a non-people, a lo-ami, in, a course, in the course of time. In other words, it's saying that the people of the northern kingdom will lose their identity as God's people as a result of consorting with a non-people. Of course, we just studied the meaning of the source of that judgment here in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. The Lord is turning Ephraim Israel over to a non-people where the members of Israel, uh, Ephraim Israel would also become a lo-ami, a non-people, as they meld themselves into the Gentile melu of the Assyrian Empire. In Hosea chapter 2, however, just as we'll see later, in the Song of Moses, for the protection of his own holy name, meaning his reputation, God's reputation, Jehovah will have mercy on Ephraim Israel, and eventually he will once again call them Ami, my people, and Ruchamah, pitied, shown mercy. The reversal of their redemption is re-reversed back to redemption again. Let's get back to Deuteronomy 32. We'll finish up for tonight. We get another startling reference here that's unmistakable at verse 22. There in verse 22 it says, that a fire has flared in God's wrath and that this fire will burn down to the depths of Sheol, down to the bowels of the earth, even under the base of mountains and hills. Sheol is the netherworld. It is the grave. And to a degree, what comes of the body and or spirit once a person is dead and buried. And this says that all those who God has turned away from, in this case Israel, are going to be sent to a grave, Sheol, that is full of fire, that has come from his wrath. Now the imagery of an underworld full of fire ought to be pretty familiar to all of us. But have you ever wondered or considered where the fires of hell came from. Who started the fire? Who keeps it burning? What's the purpose of that fire? Hell is a place of torments. And Satan and his demons may be exiled there for a time, but it's not club med for them. They hate it. They don't want to be there. They want to inhabit heaven. It was God who booted Satan and his rebellious legions out of heaven. It was God who kindled the fires of hell. 
And those fires are a physical manifestation of His spiritual wrath. The fires of hell, what lies beneath Sheol, the grave, are stoked by the Lord God Almighty, just as it says here in Deuteronomy. And the fire's purpose is to consume the unrighteous dead and eventually even the unrighteous spirit world. The fire is meant for eternal destruction. Okay, we'll continue with the Song of Moses next week.